0: Good morning, everybody. Um, So I'm in the midst of reading the Gospels, you know, and uh, in my daily devotions. I don't love the Gospels. It gives me a glimpse of how Jesus lived on earth, and I love reading the red print words, you know, and I love seeing how Jesus responded in the many diverse situations and circumstances that he was in, and like what mattered to him, you know, what was he passionate about, And uh, I believe these examples have been specifically included so that we, his followers, and his disciples would emulate him. After all, isn't that our desire? To be like him, to be Christ-like. Let us pray. Father, I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you come and just reveal truth to us this morning. That's all we ask, Holy Spirit. You are the teacher, the spirit of truth, that, Lord, we will... Um, Be open, Lord, to receive what you have for us. I know I speak for myself, Lord. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the word Christian was first mentioned in the book of Acts. The disciples were called Christians because their speech and behavior were like Christ. And so the church consists of Christians who are called to be physical representation of Christ on earth. So the church basically means a gathering of Christians. And a Christian is a follower of Christ. We are the church. It doesn't matter which church we attend. We who are Christians, followers, disciples of Christ, we are the church. Now when I refer to the church, I'm not talking about, you know, specifically this church, WBCC or Carmel. I'm talking about the church universal. Now the scriptures also tell us that and these are Jesus' words, one distinct way as to how we will be known as his disciples. So this is in the front of your bulletin, my text for today, John thirteen, thirty-four to 35. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The Passion Translation says, For when you demonstrate the same love I have for you by loving one another, everyone will know that you are my true followers. Now the first part of the verse says that it's a new commandment. The, the disciples were familiar with the commandment to love one another because it's one, one of the laws of Moses. Um, So every time I refer to um, a verse, um, it's in your insert, so so that you can follow with me when um, I read these verses. So Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what makes the commandment new is that the disciples were to love others as Christ loved them. That's what's new. Jesus loved them by dying on the cross. Jesus' love is sacrificial, a forgiving type of love. He was compassionate, he was merciful, he was forgiving. So now we, his disciples, have a new motive to love. To love our neighbor because Christ has loved us. Jesus had set the example for his disciples. He was not expecting anyone to do anything else, nothing that he has not already done himself. And then the second part of the verse, "By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another." How powerful is this statement? That the disciples will be known by the way they show love. So the new commandment, say, we look at how Jesus loved and then follow him in it. We live out the love that we see in Jesus. We're called to love others as a mark of our own discipleship. We must be known by our Christ-like love for others. And the love that we show or don't show will be the evidence whether we are his disciples. It's the strongest argument for our faith in Christ and should come out of an overflow Of what god has already done in our heart that people out there can tell who the christian is who the true disciple is who the true follower of christ is by seeing if they have love one for another and so how we love others will confirm whether our profession of faith in jesus is real some would say that one of the weaknesses of the church today is the way many christians do not embody this commandment. Why does the church exist? It is to accomplish a mission, which is to reach unbelievers with the love and hope of Christ. That means everything we do needs to work in a way unbelievers can access. So, what do the unbelievers, the people out there, think about the church and about the Christian? So, these past few weeks, I set out on a journey. To, to find the answer, I created a survey, and I went out to the streets, and this I wanted to hear from the people themselves. So I have a bunch of responses. Some are not relevant because they turn out to be Christians. I specifically was hunting down non-Christians. It's funny, I don't know, you know, in your mind, you look at a person out in the street and you think, um, they're probably not a Christian, but, you know, and then you give them the survey and you take, I'm a Christian. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to tell, you know, um, I got a bunch of uh, service, you know, uh, responses from Christians. I'm like, oh, ah, not relevant, because I really just wanted to hear from the non-Christian. But I do have a few, and I want to just highlight them. One, okay, this guy is a Christian. One is an Englishman on holiday from England, he was over 60, brought up in church, I won't say what church, professes to be a Christian, but does not go to church. Why? Because he doesn't like that the church dominates. He respects the faith, but not the religion and the do's and the don'ts. Then I approached two non-Christian teenagers. I didn't know they were that young. You know, I found out they were 16 years old, they go to Toranga Boys College. Both indicated that they have a positive per- perception of the church. I asked them to circle out of one to five how they viewed the church. five as being favorably. One is not so favorably both okay now this is this is amazing because both completed the surveys without looking and checking answers, right Both circled four. We were pretty high, even higher <laughs> than the Christians who completed three out of five so this was really interesting and they both said that they would go to church someday that they that the christians are nice kind is easy to be around with and approachable both these kids are maori we got that right for these boys and i was thinking they are so ready to receive jesus then i approached a young man now he was very respectful um, he was about 18, 19. And he said that he does not have a positive perception of the church. And the reason was, I quote, because it's a fear-based, and then he said two words that I cannot repeat here because I'm in church. So he said it's a fear-based something-something religion for weak people. It was an eye-opening exercise. As I walked away... for. The you know, from the young man, my heart broke. How did he come to that conclusion? Why? Why did he think that? Did something happen for him to feel that way about the church? An article from Christianity Today says, I quote, The church today is compromised, shallow, legalistic, petty, and unforgiving. Now, we may not agree, but the world thinks so. Now, this is really sad because Jesus is not any of those things when the people you're trying to reach struggle with you it's hard to reach them a survey done in America says this only 21 percent of unbelievers have a positive perception of the church the same survey states the top five perception of the church by non-Christians the church is judgmental the church is hypocritical The church is known for the things they are against. The church is irrelevant to me. The church is detached from the real issues my community is facing. I don't think it's Jesus that is the problem. I think it's that people calling themselves Christians (laughs) have taken what could be a beautiful faith, a beautiful relationship full of love and respect and have turned it into a way to bully people Judge them using the word of God. We need to remember who we are and where we came from before God so mercifully saved us. Being arrogant, confrontational, judgmental, angry contradicts not only our message, but the messenger himself. Even if we are 100% right, correct in what we are saying, we can be so wrong in how we are saying it. People respond to empathy, love, humility, compassion, as well as to someone who takes the time to listen to their concern or point of view and to respond in a spirit of grace and peace. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 in your notes. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. I used to tell my students when I was teaching at Faith Bible College, if you have nothing nice to say, just shut up. We do more harm than good when we start throwing around Jesus' name, or this or that verse, and then turn around and say and do things that completely contradict God and his word. The truth is, people find the church harsh, judgmental, exclusive, and too often abusive these unqualities people should expect from christians but too often that's exactly what christians have shown them again this is so wrong because christ is not like that at all romans chapter 2 verse 24 for your actions seem to fulfill what is written god's precious name is cursed among the nations because of you does it matter what people think about us I mean you might think ah who cares what people think about but yes of course it matters. We are called to represent Christ in this world. John 17, 18. And this was when Jesus prayed for his disciples. I have commissioned them to represent me just as you commissioned me to represent you. We saw earlier that how we love others will prove to the world whether we are his disciples. We are to bring good news. So what's so good about the news? if we are pronouncing judgment on people. No wonder people stay away from church. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. And what is that good news? The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns. Acts 20:24. 20, My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. What's that work? The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. The message translation says, to let everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. Let us look at a couple of passages in the Gospels to see how Jesus responded to the sinner. The first story, very familiar story, the woman caught in adultery. Follow with me in your insert, John 8, 3-11. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him to say something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, and so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. What is interesting about this story is that it does not even mention the men with whom she had committed the act with. So really, they were not at all concerned with matters of the law. And when Jesus told them to cast the first stone if they were without sin, he was saying, If they were to hold her to the punishment the law demands, then they too should be held to that same standard. Jesus never called into question the punishment prescribed by the law. He knew the Pharisees were right. Stoning was called for by the law of Moses, but he chose to show mercy and grace. One interesting thing to note here is that Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the middle. In the middle of the crowd. Now if he was with her in the middle that would mean that he was not with the others judging her. He was with her, alongside her, and he stayed with her right until the end. Jesus was the only person who stood up for her and showed compassion. He did not condemn her even though she was caught in sin. For me, this is huge. John 3, 17. God did not send his son to the world to judge and condemn the world, but to be its savior and rescue it. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. The Bible says, judge not, lest we be judged. We be judged. So why do Christians judge? The only person who has the authority to judge is Jesus, and yet he did not judge. In fact, the only ones Jesus judged were the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who knew the law and should have known better and should have understood the nature of God. John 9.39 Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus was pretty harsh on the Pharisees. We're going to look at some of the scriptures and why Jesus was so hard on them. And every time I read these verses about the Pharisees, I can't help asking myself, am I like that at all? Matthew 23, verse 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tie even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tie, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Jesus confronted them for focusing on details of the law. They focused on the letter of the law, followed it with pride, but neglecting the most important, justice, mercy, and faith. Then the Pharisees were angry that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. The law was more important to them than seeing a person healed. John seven twenty-three to 24 For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath... You go ahead and do it, so not as to break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Jesus is teaching that the law of mercy, healing the lame man, overrides the laws of Moses. Seeing people through the lens of mercy is more important than the law. The scribes and Pharisees would put burdens on the people, make decisions on what the people could or could not do on the Sabbath, the do's and the don'ts. Does that not sound like what the church would do, telling people how they should live their lives, what they can, cannot do? These are burdens that we put on people. But Jesus came to give rest and to rescue them. He came to save them. We we are saved by grace then why do we burden people and make it about works, the do's and the don'ts? Jesus cares for people, and you can see that through the Gospels. He desires for them to know him, to enter into his kingdom. His heart is for people to find life in him. So when we judge others, we are preventing them from finding salvation and being reconciled with him. We forget that we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this message, wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's, Um, ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Romans 13.8, owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. And if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. It's as simple as that. We don't owe anyone anything except to love them as Christ loved us. And if we do that, we would have fulfilled the law. And then we read that it troubled the Pharisees that Jesus would hang out with the sinners. Matthew nine, ten to 13. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors, and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Honestly, when I read this verse, it makes me wonder. If Jesus was walking on earth in this day and age, who will he be with? Who will he be hanging out with? And you know what? I don't think he will be in church. He will be out there in the world with the ones the church condemns as sinners. And it makes me shudder to think how we may have got it all wrong. It brings me to my second story from the Bible, Um, story of Zacchaeus. You know the story. Um, the text, I'm mean, sorry, the, the verse is there, but I didn't have any space. But you know the story. Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector. He had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus. He was too short. So he ran ahead, climbed a tree, because Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus came down, took Jesus to his house with great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. That's a lot. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Zacchaeus was portrayed in the Bible as a sinful tax collector. and Despised by the crowd. Jesus shocked the crowd by First of all, addressing Zacchaeus, and then saying that he must be a guest at his house. Really, Jesus is going to visit him, a sinner. Jesus did not say to Zacchaeus, "You must repent, clean up your life, then I'll come and visit." Jesus accepted Zacchaeus unconditionally, expressed desire to visit him at his home, even though he knew Zacchaeus was uh, what what Zacchaeus did for a living. Being with Jesus was all it took for Zacchaeus to have a change of heart. This is an example of a sinful man who was changed by Jesus' presence and compassion. And it is an example for us and to us that all we need to do is to make a way for people to come to Jesus, to be with him, to be in his presence, and get to know him. It is not necessary for people to have to make things right first before coming to him, telling people that they need to repent, change their ways, change their lifestyles, or that they would go to hell does not help. In fact, it does more harm than good. Jesus' presence alone and his love for them is enough for people to want to change. An encounter, one single encounter with the Lord Jesus will lead them to do things they never thought they would admitting that they have been wrong and wanting to make things right. Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Another version says, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Gandhi was known to have said this. I quote, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Our inability to live what we preach, our inability to love like how Jesus loved is driving people away. The solution is to embrace more of what we are supposed to authentically be. Be loving, compassionate, kind, gracious, embracing, genuine. These are the very characteristics of Jesus. And if Christians became more like Christ, more people will be drawn to him. Let us in humility be Christ-like, love the way he loved, so that the world can see the real deal, see Jesus in us, that we Christians, we will not be an obstacle to people coming to know the Lord. I am convinced, and I know you are too, if people really got to know Jesus, they would come to him, because Jesus is hard to resist. The phrase, what would Jesus do, WWJD, became a personal motto for Christian youth in the early 1990s. They they used this phrase as a reminder of their belief, To act in a manner that would demonstrate the love of Jesus. Maybe we should remember this phrase and ask ourselves, what would Jesus do when relating to unbelievers? How we treat others tells people more about what we believe. It tells people what following Jesus means to us and speaks louder than what we preach. Spiritual maturity isn't about how much we know, it's about how much we love. Now, I have decided that I cannot take the credit or the blame for what people say about Christians in general, but I am responsible for what they say about me, what they see in me, that either attracts them to Jesus or turns them away. And I believe this responsibility is true for all of us, everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ.